This is Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, John. All right, you may be seated. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to have you here in church with us. Last week, I was putting my water on the ground, and so I got a stand today. It's good. It's good. So I wanted to begin this morning by just saying thank you. Thank you, thank you for everybody who uh, did anything last week uh, during our Easter celebration. It really was a very big uh, three days. We had our Good Friday service on Good Friday, and then we had uh, Easter uh, egg hunt in this space, which I didn't think we would be able to pull off because I thought it was going to be cold and people would be cramped, but it turned out to be great. And then we had a really, really wonderful Easter service where we baptized some people and we, uh, and we uh, well, we had a good day. We had a good day. Uh, and I, just as an encouragement to you as we begin uh, this next kind of season, because Everything in, uh, in the church calendar, in the church year, kind of starts at Christmas and kind of runs through till Easter. And then after Easter, everybody's like, it's summer! Let's all, <laughs> let's all vacate, uh, which often happens. But the reality of uh, life and of this community of faith over the next pretty, probably six months, is that the next six months are, are a pivotal time for us. They really are. And it, I want to encourage you. Uh, to lean in, to lean into everything that God is doing in this place uh, for this season. Um, you know, I've always wanted to be a part of a church that wasn't one of those come and see churches where you can kind of slide in the back, in and out, over and over and over again, where it's just kind of come and see the show. Everybody know what I'm talking about? I'm not trying to be disparaging, but it's never been something that resonated with me. The truth of the matter is that I always wanted to be a part of a church that was a come and be church where you could come and be a part of something that God was doing in, my, in our midst. And I think that over the next couple of months, as we kind of lean into what the things that God is doing in this place, that we can continue to become that type of church, a church where you can be deeply known and loved for who you are, a church where uh, your gifts and your talents can be put to use, a church where, and this is probably a little bit controversial, but a church where you might even be a little bit challenged on your, in your spiritual walk, right? Encouraged, but also challenged to grow in ways that maybe you didn't know you needed to grow before. This is all what it means to be a part of a church. And so my encouragement to you over the next couple of, uh, next few weeks is just to do that, to be the church, to gather together, to break bread, to worship, to pray, to give, to do all of the things that are involved in being of church. Maybe have some people over to your house. Parties are really good, right? I think they're an underestimated part of what it means to be of church. I have had some friends who are really, grow, who are really good at throwing good parties, and it's a spiritual gift. It is. And so, uh, uh, and here's the truth. Uh, building a church, being a part of building a community of faith, being a part of building a church into a healthy express, local expression of the kingdom of God is the most significant thing that any of us can do with our lives. Because if God is the God of the universe 
and we are a part of uh, enacting his plan in our locality, in our specific location, then we are a part of the most important thing that is happening on the earth in our specific sphere of influence. It's true. And so as we lean in over the next couple of months, as we uh, really uh, listen, open our ears and our hearts to what God might be saying or doing in our midst, my encouragement to you is just to do that, to just be open to what God might have you do and be in this place, in this community. Because um, this sounds, this will sound weird, but I really believe the winds of the Spirit are blowing in this place. And over the next couple of months are incredibly, incredibly important. So that's just a little post-Easter encouragement to you. So along those lines of what it means to, build, to be a church and what it means to build a church that's healthy and beautiful and God-honoring, uh, we're beginning a new series this week uh, called uh, Beauty, Infinity, and Wonder. There, there it is. Ashley did a wonderful graphic for us today. She showed that to me and she said, is that too girly? Because we want to we wanna, we wanna, we wanna thread the needle between masculine and feminine. We want to be somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I said, no, it's perfect. Feels like me, anyways. Uh, which is hopefully a little bit more masculine. I don't want to thread the needle between masculine and feminine, but anyways, I'm super masculine, anyways. Uh, but what we're talking about over the next four weeks is something that I think is incredibly important, and that is the role that beauty plays in the life of a Christian. The role that beauty plays in the life of the church. And it turns out to be incredibly important. Now, if you've been following Jesus for any period of time, you might have heard of this phrase, uh, and you can raise your hand because that's okay. Uh, have you ever heard of the phrase spiritual disciplines? Raise your hand if you have heard that phrase before. Spiritual practices are another way of putting it. I prefer the term spiritual rhythms, spiritual rhythms, because I think that these are practices that we can build into the rhythms or habits of our daily lives in order to cultivate hearts that look like Jesus's heart. That's the point, right? But there, and there are a number, number of spiritual rhythms or practices that we can, uh, we can take on or we can observe as, as a means of paying attention to Jesus. We can practice prayer, right? We don't just pray around meals, but we can, we can, uh, kind of weave prayer into our daily lives in a way that we can learn to connect with God in the rhythm of our daily lives. That's one we think of a lot. The other, another spiritual rhythm that we think is really important here is the, the Scriptures, spending time in the Bible, actually, reading it daily as a means of connecting with the words of God on a daily basis, of uh, bringing our heart back into that place where we connect with God. That's a spiritual rhythm or a discipline that we should be picking up. There are other forms of spiritual practices as well. There's giving of our, of our money, not just so that uh, we can give our money, but so that we can teach our hearts to not be a slave to money or to resource, right? And so that we can put those resources in the hands of God in order to build his kingdom. It should be a regular practice of our lives. And there are, other, there are many other practices as well, like, uh, uh, like church attendance, right? So you're doing that this week. Congratulations. Uh, to all the people listening on the podcast, bad, you're horrible, no, uh, <laughs> you failed, uh, like church attendance and fasting or, um, or confession, these are all spiritual practices or rhythms that we can weave into the fabric of our lives in order to uh, train our hearts to be like Jesus. But there's one spiritual practice that I think we overlook, and particularly in the modern American church, I think we overlook it quite a bit, 
And that is the spiritual practice of allowing our hearts and our minds to be moved by beauty, to actually observe or set aside time or make space in our lives to observe or to be impacted by beauty. Now you're saying, Nick, this is strange. How, how, is, how is being moved or impacted by something beautiful a spiritual practice? <coughs> and, I'll, and I will just say to you this, that it's actually an incredibly important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a human being even, to allow our hearts and our minds to be, uh, to be moved or to be impacted by beauty. And it can be a kind of spiritual practice or a rhythm that we work into our lives to be moved in this way in our daily lives in order to fight the kind of pull, the momentum of grumpiness maybe, <laughs> that, is, that is inherent in modern American life, right? We all know this. Because you know that in the, da the daily stresses of our lives, we, have grown kind of, we can grow kind of callous to the beauty of God's creation, can't we? We can, we can shut ourselves off to the, to, the, to the fact that we occupy a good and gracious world, a world created by God, a world that was created uh, beautiful. We can shut ourselves off to the sense of childlike wonder and awe that we are called to carry out into our daily lives, the excitement that animates us and propels us forward into our days, not just uh, in a perfunctory way, but in a way that is enlivened and has energy. But most of us, I think, and particularly in, in American society today, most of us are kind of just getting by, aren't we? Many people spend big chunks, big swaths of their lives just getting by. Have any of you ever had one of those like three-month spans where it started on a Tuesday and then you woke up and it was like three months later and you're like, I just did it the exact same thing in the exact same way for three straight months, and I don't think I was happy at all, right? We know this. This is what happens when you get up every morning and go to work, and then you go to bed, and you eat, and on and on and on, right? It becomes this rhythmic pattern in our lives. One of my favorite authors, a guy named David Foster Wallace, captures the struggle of American life when it's, when it's devoid or when it's drained of its beauty really well. He was giving a commencement speech, speech at a prestigious college on the East Coast, um, and that, this speech was so famous that they made it into a book called This Is Water. But in this, uh, in this little snippet that I'm going to read for you, he describes the kind of monotony of an average adult day, and he, he uses uh, the grocery store as a really powerful analogy of what we all experience and why in our lives we can be kind of, our lives can be sucked dry of beauty and significance. So I'm just going to read this section of this passage for you because I think it's really good. <clears throat> And I love this guy. So, he says, There happens to be whole large parts of American adult life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. Think if you were one of the college kids and this is what you're getting. Um, the parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning to go to your challenging white-collar graduate job and you work hard for nine or ten hours and at the end of the day you're tired and you're stressed out and all you want to do is go home, have a good supper, and maybe unwind for a couple hours and then hit the rack early because you have to get up the next day and do it all over again. But then you remember there's no food at home. 
you haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now, after work, you have to get in the car and you have to drive to the supermarket. It's the end of a work day and the traffic's very bad, so getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because, of course, it's the time of day when all of the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping and the store is hideously fluorescently lit and infused with soul-killing music and corporate pop and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you can't just get in and get out quickly. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit stores, crowded aisles to find stuff you want. You have to maneuver your junky cart through all of these other tired, hurried people with carts. And of course, there are also the glacially slow old people and the spacey people and the ADHD kids who block the aisle. And you have to grit your teeth and try to be polite as you ask them to let you buy. And eventually, finally, you get all of your shopping supplies, except now it turns out that there aren't enough checkout lines open, even though it's the end of the day rush, so the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. But you can't take your fury out on the front lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at this prestigious college. But anyway... You finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and wait to get your check or card authorized by a machine and you get told to have a nice day in the voice that is the absolute voice of death. And you have to, <laughs> and you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way through the crowded, bumpy, jittery parking lot and try to load the bags in the car in such a way that everything doesn't fall out of the bags and roll all over the trunk on your way home. And then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, etc., etc. right? We know this day, right? We know this feeling, don't we? It's pretty much the experience of adult life, isn't it? It is. Maybe it's not the grocery store for you. Maybe it's the cafeteria. I don't know. Maybe it's the drop-off lane at your kid's school. I don't know what it is. But in our modern American predicament, I think it is very, very easy to slip into a way of living that's, that where, it's, where our predominant experience is frustration, stress, worry, just a kind of overall banality to life. And it is into a world like this that the words of the Apostle Paul in our teaching text today seem kind of crazy when he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his, uh, uh, the way he renders his translation of this passage in the Message Bible. He says, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, Things to praise, not to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Isn't that a breath of fresh air in a world that's devoid of beauty? 
Aren't those words kind of calming and soothing? And aren't they so opposite from the way that we experience the majority of our lives? Aren't they? That this idea that we can cultivate minds and hearts that dwell on the true and the noble and the reputable and the authentic and the compelling and the beautiful, the idea that we can actually do that, the idea that uh, we're encouraged from the scriptures to embrace the beautiful, to meditate on the pure and the good, and to work at making our minds go to those places is something that in the, in the tedium of our days doesn't seem possible, does it? To, put, to actually put ourselves in that position, to actually practice what it means to dwell on the beautiful and the good, and to not allow our minds to kind of uh, run down the hill of negativity and struggle and just blandness, really, right? You know, the way that we do this, the way that we fight that pull in modern American society is we learn to appreciate, to love, to open up space in our lives for the good and the beautiful. To be people, to be followers of Jesus who live aesthetically beautiful lives, who learn to appreciate the aesthetics of life, the aesthetics of a good world that God created in a way that fills our lives with energy and hope and life. You know, there, this world that Wallace describes is too familiar to us. But if we serve a God who is both good and creative and longs to bring the good and creative out of the dark and the, and, and the dreary and the drab, then we ought to be people following him who embrace beauty and goodness in life. So for the rest of today, what I want to talk about is just this idea of beauty. I want to kind of define it for us. So I want to ask the question, what is it? What is beauty? So how do I actually determine what is beautiful so that I can dwell on it, right? Then I want to answer the question, why is it important? Why is it important that I do this? And finally, I want to talk about a couple of ways that we can actually cultivate the spiritual discipline of um, paying attention to beauty. How do we, in, my, in the practical uh, day-in, day-out routine of my life, how do I create space in my life to appreciate the, what is beautiful? How do I open my life to the wonder and imagination of God's good world, right? How do I actually do that? And so our first question today is, what is beauty? How do we define it? Because in order to open myself up to it, we have to actually know what it is, right? We have to identify with it. Now, uh, what I'm talking about when I talk about beauty in the theological sense this morning has little to no connection to what we talk about when we talk about cultural conceptions of beauty in the kind of industry of modern American movies and magazines and particularly reality TV, right? This is not what I'm talking about this morning. When we talk about beauty this morning, what we're primarily talking about is a glimpse of the divine, is a, is a theophany, is a picture of God that we get through God's creation. And really, when we try to capture this idea of beauty, I think it has three characteristics. There's three characteristics to beauty I want to talk about this morning. And the first one is going to sound a little strange. So just bear with me for a moment. The first characteristic, the first aspect of beauty that makes something truly beautiful in the Christian sense is, is that it is accompanied by a sense of longing. If something is truly beautiful in the Christian sense, it is accompanied by a sense of longing. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? That you would say, what do you mean longing? If something's beautiful, it's just beautiful. It doesn't create a sense of longing in me. Longing is not a good thing. That, that turns out not to be true. 
C.S. Lewis describes uh, this as a kind of ache for something that is even beyond the thing that we feel or observe as being beautiful. So when you think of the time that you first saw the mountains, right? Or think about the time that you first saw the ocean. Or think about the time that you observed a sunset, a beautiful sunset. For me, it's the smell of Clear Lake on a hot July evening as the sun is setting, which for some people might be a little repulsive, but for me, is like it's, it's the, that's like my vision of heaven. It really is. It creates this sense of nostalgia and longing in us, doesn't it? We have this feeling that we, we want something that is even beyond the thing that we're seeing at that point as being beautiful, right? It creates this kind of almost buoyant hope in us. This is the way, and the same thing happens when we view art, right? If something is truly beautiful, if we're truly captured by it, if it, 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 it creates this sense of longing or desire in us that's very interesting. This is the way that G.K. Chesterton says it. Every true art, artist, Chesterton argues, feels that he is touching something, trans, uh, touching transcendental truths, that his images are shadows of things seen through the veil. You, you see, the reason this is the case is because beauty, true beauty, does not point to itself. It is not an end in itself. Rather, true beauty points to God. It is an image of the divine. It is a picture of God's good world. It, it carries the hallmark or the thumbprint of God on it. C.S. Lewis, again, in a book titled The Weight of Glory, says it this way, the books or the music in which we thought uh, the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. First, Something that is beautiful is accompanied by a sense of longing, a sense of this is not the thing. It creates a hope or a desire or a joy in us for something even better than the thing that we see. And Lewis argued that this is the primary evidence for God in the world, that, that if there was one apologetic, if there was one main argument that there is a God, it is that when we see something truly beautiful, it is not the thing that we see that truly satisfies us. It actually points to something greater. It actually points to something beyond. And we know this inherently when we see something beautiful in nature, right? I'm looking at Dale, so I'm thinking about a beautiful horse. Right? It points to something beyond it, doesn't it? So that's one. It creates a sense of longing in us. The second thing that I think we need in order to, to determine if something is beautiful is that beauty must be true. It must be true. Now, Paul says it in his, our Philippians passage, right? Whatever is true, whatever is good, right? If something is not true, it is not truly beautiful. Now, by true, I don't mean realistic, right? I don't mean like uh, completely realistic, because C.S. Lewis was a powerful believer in things like fairy tales and stories, wasn't he? Truths that were communicated in non-realistic ways, in fictional ways even. Who's ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? 
Who's ever read The Lord of the Rings? Who's ever read a great novel like Anna Karenina or Dostoevsky's The Idiot? Or maybe uh, a more recent one, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead. These are works of fiction, but they're true and they're beautiful, aren't they? But too often in our culture, we are told that some things that are not true are actually beautiful. This is part of why I think irony and satire in our comedy has probably gone a little too far in our culture, because it's taken us away from the tr- taken us away from truth. And this is also why things like airbrushing and disruptive forms of beauty like plastic surgery can be so toxic to our souls. Because in a sense, they can lie to us. They are a kind of lie to us about the reality of our world, right? When you see that uh, model on the cover of a magazine who's been airbrushed to high heaven, the reality is, is that's not the real person there. That's a lie, right? And the form of beauty that Cosmopolitan is trying to sell us is actually not true, right? And so often in our culture, particularly American culture, we're, de- we're, we're deceived in that way, right? And we believe the thing that is actually not true is our standard of beauty. And then we get our standards of beauty all mixed up, right? This happens all the time. So in order for something to be beautiful, it must also be true. It must also be true. And the third thing we have, the third thing we run into is that beauty must be good. Now, I have a whole long thing about here about beauty being good, but just suffice it to say, I don't have time. I have to, I have to skip this part. Uh, but, uh, but when I say good, this whole section about defining beauty is really uh, that goodness or uh, skill or artistry must also accompany the things that we see as beautiful. All right, that's the third thing there. So, beauty must come with a sense of longing, it must be true, and it must be good, or it must, be, uh, it must have an artistic sensibility to it. So, that's what, beauty, that's what beauty is. That's the first thing. But why is beauty important? Why is it important? You know, why is it really important? Can I, you know, I can eat what I need to eat, and I can live my life, and I, I can go about business, but why is beauty important? It was Dostoevsky, the the Russian writer, who said, beauty will save the world, right? Why is beauty important? Now, I don't know the the answer to this question exactly. Well, I'm sorry about that. I don't know everything completely. Uh, but But I think that a lot of this has to do with this idea that beauty in and of itself is doxological. Is that up there? That's a big word, yeah. Uh, Doxa is a Greek word. It just means glory. But in this context, it just means worship. It just means worship. Doxology is just a big churchy word for worship. What I mean by by beauty is doxological, right, is that beauty is important because uh, God is beautiful, right? And God created a beautiful world. And when we see beauty, when, when, we, when we enjoy beauty, it actually leads us to the worship of the God who created those things. Does this make sense? Beauty should lead us to worship. It should, it should lead us to a place of worship. When you see something beautiful, when you get lost in it, it should lead you to the person of Jesus. This is what it should do. This is why, from the very beginning, Christians have been people 
who love art and music and beauty and use those forms as a way of communicating about the goodness of God. This is why from very early on, Christians attempted to make the spaces where they worshipped beautiful. If you go to the Holy Land and you dig down into these old churches, there's all these beautiful mosaic tiles that they unearthed from the, from the basements of these places that have been covered over from, by centuries of rubble. From, because from the very beginning, Christians wanted to communicate the goodness or beauty of their God in the forms that they used to display that. Does this make sense? This is why Christian people who, when moved by God, often lean into beautiful things. Now, this doesn't necessarily just have to be art. In the Old Testament, we hear about craftsmen, men who were skilled at wood, skilled at, the, skilled at things like carpentry or skilled at masonry work, and they built the temple, and they did it in this beautiful way, right? And there's always this thing when I see, a, we see primarily men, I know there are women who do woodworking, but primarily men who who uh, do woodworking, and they build this beautiful thing, and they take great pride in it. It's, it's this beautiful construction, right? And, it, and, they, and they do that because they care about it, right? And they want to see something beautiful. Or There's also people who love cars, right? And they love working on an engine. And though I can look at an engine, and it makes no sense to me, they can look at an engine, and it can be this beautiful thing, right, with all these connecting pieces and all and they, they, it makes sense to them. It can be this beautiful construction. And ultimately, that beauty, that desire for form and structure should lead us to God. Because we serve a God who created this beautiful world and allowed us the ability to have all this form and structure. And it should compel in our hearts this sense of worship. This is what we read in Psalm 19 when the psalmist looks at creation, when he looks at the world that God created right? He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour, for, pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard in them. But yet, I cut that off, but yet they communicate the glory of God. This is what happens when we see something beautiful. It should call out of us something truly worshipful. It should call worship out of our heart. It should point to the reality of God. And when we see the beauty of God, we can't help but worship. Now, in my family this week, the thing that has been most beautiful has been a bird feeder. <clears throat> Ashley's birthday was on Monday. And I'm, as a husband and as a person in general, I would qualify myself as a bad gift giver, right? I'm not good at it. Uh, there was one Christmas where I gave Ashley a speaker pillow. We don't talk about it anymore. Uh, but I got her a bird feeder for her birthday because she's scared of birds. Um, no, I got her a bird feeder. And honestly, my kids haven't watched TV since we got it. They just like pull, up their, pull, their, pull their chairs up after breakfast to the sliding glass door, and we just talk about the birds that are landing on the bird feeder. And there's this kind of a uh, beautiful and quiet thing that's happening in my kitchen as we, as we talk about the birds. And as I, when I get home from work, the kids tell me that there was a red one and there was a blue one and there was a da, da, da one, right? And ultimately, creating space in our lives for that type of beauty does call worship out of us, right? I'm convinced. I'm convinced of it. That as, as we create space in our lives for the goodness of God, as we create space for beauty in our lives, it does... Uh, it does break through the, the kind of mundane, drab, uh, modern American life, and it does pull worship into, the, into my daily existence in a way that is beautiful and light-filled. 
And maybe I leave that place and I, I, I leave those birds after lunch and I, uh, and I forget about it and I kind of get back into the cycle of being a little frustrated or a little perturbed or a little whatever, right? But ultimately, that, that little bit of light opens up an opportunity for me to actually worship the creator of the universe. It's a beautiful opportunity and it's a beautiful thing. And we are called to live lives of beauty so that we can worship well. So that's why it's important. And the third thing is how do I experience more beauty? And the answer to that is by a bird feeder. That's the answer. Um, beauty is uh, important, and it can uh, help us to see God, to worship and acknowledge him. And the way that we experience it is individual to each of us, yes. But I think there's a, there are some kind of hints that we can have. There are some ways of seeing uh, there are ways of leaning into this spiritual rhythm of beauty that I think can be helpful. There are some things that we can actually do in order to fill our lives with more beauty. And the first thing is, is kind of two things, but it's one. Uh, forget about yourself and see life as a gift. So that's the first thing. Forget about yourself and see life as a gift. Think about all the times in your life when you're mad and you're frustrated and uh, work is hard and the kids are crazy and all of those things, right? Think, think about all of those times in your life. What are you thinking about in those moments? You're thinking about yourself, right? You're thinking about, oh, this is going to ruin this thing for me, and that thing for me, and the next thing for me. You are thinking about yourself. You are thinking about your life, and your happiness, and your money, and your well-being, and your on and on and on and on and on. Whenever you're thinking about yourself, and this is a general rule about life, whenever you're thinking about yourself, you are not happy. I am not happy. Whenever we're thinking primarily about ourselves, it leads to displeasure. It just does. But when you see your life as connected to something bigger or more significant than just your own life, right? When you can enjoy something beautiful, whether it is a great meal or a great piece of craftsmanship, right? You are almost never thinking about yourself in those moments. Even when you're eating a beautiful meal, right? You're thinking about the beauty of that meal. You're not thinking necessarily even about yourself. Augustine, uh, Augustine, sorry, was the great fourth century pastor and theologian. And he talked about this idea about how he was seeking beauty for himself and it trapped him in a kind of pit of despair. But when he, when he was actually able to uh, meet Jesus and forget about himself, humble himself, and see his life as coherent within the hands of God, everything in his life became beautiful again. When he got out of his own head and got out of his own way, everything became beautiful again. When everything in your life depends on you, right? It, when everything in your life is about you, when your life's purpose and end is only yourself, you will shut yourself off from experiencing anything beautiful. You will. But when you open your life up to God, when you open your life up to others, when you, when you forget about yourself and you understand that life itself is a gift, when you understand that it's grace, beauty will come rushing in. It really will. Now, you can't get over yourself on, by yourself, right? You're locked inside your brain on your own. But God, through his grace, wants to free you from that. He wants to open uh, up your horizons. He wants to help you with your mind and your heart, and he, wants, and he wants via his spirit to take you into a place where you're thinking more about him and more about others than you ever are about yourself, and by so doing, you will experience more beauty 
than you could ever think if the band could come up. So that's one. Dallas Willard says it this way, I think. It's really wonderful. He says, beauty is, above all, a manifestation of grace, of abundance and generosity. It is why God placed flowers on the earth, right? The beauty, above all, is just a manifestation of God's grace. And in order to see that grace, you have to not be thinking about yourself. This is the truth. So that's one. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I think this is probably the most important one and the one we get lost on the most, is we need to see beauty in every one, every person. Maybe this is connected a little bit to forgetting about yourself, but seeing the beauty in people, and by people I mean all people, is one of the most important things. It's actually a barometer for our hearts to determine if we're actually, if we're actually living uh, life connected to the goodness and grace of God. You know, in our culture, in American culture, our value of people, whether we see them as beautiful or not, is, is uh, told to us, right? So the beautiful people are like Kim whoever or Ryan what is, what's his name, right? These are the beautiful people. And everybody else is just kind of like trying to attain to that beauty. And as soon as you get there, then you can be called beautiful, right? This happens not to be the way that the world works at all. Too often we've become calloused to the beauty that we see in every single human face. We say things like, I don't like people, or I'm not a people person. And when I mean that, I'm not talking about introvert versus extrovert. But when people say that to me, I, when they say, I'm not a people person, I very often say in my mind, then what are you, <laughs> right? And I'll tell you what you are, right? If you really believe that and you live your life that way, you are far from the heart of Jesus. Because Jesus loves and sees beauty in all people, in every single individual in the world. He sees and loves people. We are called to cultivate the, that, that sight, that vision that Jesus has, where we see beauty in people. Jesus says, whenever, uh, whatever you have done in the scriptures, he says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me, right? And when he, what he means there is not that when you do nice things for people, Jesus is going to, like, reward you. What, what he means there is that loving people, seeing beauty in them, is a way of worshiping you. This is what he means. A beautiful God creates beautiful people. And when you can't see the beauty in people is when you know your heart is a long way from that beautiful God that intrinsically knit each of us together and finds us so valuable and beautiful that he's willing to come here and be one of us and lay down his life for us. This is what it means to see beauty.
heart of God. And when we and when we lean into that reality, when we truly, truly see it, it changes us. It transforms us. It, 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 when you can see beauty in the face of a person who you might not actually even like all that much, you're living in a good space. You're living with a heart that is able to appreciate and see said it this way, the biggest disease today is not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feeling of being unwanted, uncared for, and deserted by everybody. It is true. We've been so conditioned by our vision of what beauty is that we've, we've uh, forgotten. We're, we easily pass over the things that are truly beautiful in our world. We do this. And Jesus this morning calls us to a vision of beauty that sees and grocery store who are the most maddening to see them as as beautiful as seeing the glory of god alive in that person's soul because it is the very god of the universe who created that person and breathed life into them this is a beautiful world that we occupy and all of you and every one of them are beautiful people and as and if we lean into that if we know it if we feel it in our bones we can't help but live a drab drab existence
this morning, as you come to the table, just remember, God loves you. He longs for you to worship. He longs for you to see every person around.